0: Dear Asian Girl, for Asian Girls, by Asian Girls. Hi, guys. Welcome back to season three of our podcast. And it's Women's Throughout the Ages. And today, our topic is going to be on women's issues, but specifically, Um, women's intersectionality and today we are here with Emma and she's going to be talking with us
1: about intersectionality um yeah hey guys Alina I'm back here surprising um yeah so today we have Emma who's talking with us about her experiences running intersectional.abc which I actually wasn't familiar with, but I think she will be a very interesting um, guest to have on this episode because as we all know, social media activism can be very damaging. And I think her platform is very important because it creates a sense of like reality within activism and As y'all know, in the username, it says intersectional. So you know she's intersectional. (laughs) So I think that's important. And do you wanna just like give a brief introduction
0: about yourself, who you are, anything that you're interested in, just anything you wanna say?
2: Yeah, hi everyone, my name is Emma. Um, I run intersectional.abc on Instagram. Um, where I reach like millions of people per week. Um, I'm a first year here at NYU and I'm studying public policy.
1: Um, So yeah, I guess we can just start off with just intersectionality in general. So um, yeah, Emma, do you want to give us what your definition of intersectionality is, like whatever you think it it is to you um, in your experiences?
2: Yeah, so intersectionality to me um, is kind of just... Um, it talks about like all of your identities um, and how like each identity um, intersects with the other. And so one of the best analogies that I've heard so far is like if you imagine like a traffic stop um, and you have all of these different cars going different directions, um, intersectionality is making sure that each car is um, is able to take turns and each car is able to go without accidents happening. That's a good way to put it,
0: especially for someone who knows how to drive. it's like a really good analogy and I definitely see that because I don't know I've never really knew how to perfect perfectly like understand intersectionality since it's such like a big topic to really talk about and there's so many like different aspects in it but the way you kind of described it is like it's perfect it's a good way
1: um yeah I completely agree whenever I talk about intersectionality I give like the most basic like explanation I'm like oh it's when you like understand people's identities and kind of apply it to like your social justice-based activism. So I think that's a great example. Um, And kind of for the people who don't really know what it is, um, we can go to the root of what intersectionality is. And so this term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is, um, it was about 30 years ago when she coined the term and she's a professor at Columbia University um, and also UCLA. And so this is taken directly from a Times article. So we'll be sure to link that in the description. And so Crenshaw states the term intersectionality to describe the way people's social identities can overlap and why all inequality is not created equal, um, so I think this is a great definition. I mean, it's coming straight from the person who coined the term. Um, I think specifically the second part of that statement is really interesting because I think that's a part of intersectionality that not a lot of people like talk about, which is why all inequality is not created equal. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. So, like. Um, I would ask you, Emma, do you agree with this definition and how do you see this definition as applicable in like modern uh, Gen Z activism and social justice activism? Um, because it's such an easy platform to kind of get get um, get kind of lost in, I guess.
2: Yeah, so I definitely agree with the definition. Um, I would say how it applies to Gen Z. Is that um, if we look through history and we look at how um, activism has been performed, um, we can see that, like back in the 1920s, when women were fighting for the right to vote, it was only white women and it was only their right to vote, right? And so now in 2021, um, I think intersectionality is encompassing all of your identities. So for me personally, um, so I, as um, uh, as a woman, I identify, sorry, I identify as a woman. And um, for me, I face sexism, but I'm also um, Taiwanese American. And so there's also like an added layer of racism on there. And also like as an out LGBT person, there's like another added layer of complexity. And so In the modern world, it's trying to understand how those different identities um, interact with each other and um, how they shape like your experiences every day.
0: So what are some of like the experiences you have faced in terms of intersectionality? Like what are your experiences on it? And how has it like sort of tied into like kind of who you are? Like, do you have like any examples, I guess you can say, like a situation where in which your intersectionality was not taken to account of?
2: Yeah, so I think some examples would be um, in Western society, um, the LGBTQ community is more accepted. So we see things in America like Pride Month and Pride parades, and it's very like out and um, it's very gay, right? But a lot of um, immigrant communities who are from the East, so um, in my own experience, like specifically from Eastern Asia, they are more conservative. And so <clears throat> that means that they, not necessarily disrespect the LGBT community, but because they are more conservative, like that can be a different experience for like an LGBT person who is also um, East Asian. Um, another example is um, for me being an East Asian woman, I'm facing different stereotypes than like East Asian men. Right. So for me, as an East Asian woman, like the dating scene is really difficult because but for Asian men, it's like the complete opposite. Right. So they face things like demasculine um, demasculinization um, and and they're seen as like too feminine, whereas like East Asian women are seen as like sexual objects, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, completely. And I think what you brought up about. Well, it's actually very similar in the South Asian community um, about this idea of like having another layer of being a woman and also a woman of color and how that contrasts with men of color in our communities. Um, And something that's interesting that's kind of related to what you said earlier um, is this idea of white feminism. And that's a big issue. Um, And I've had personal experiences with that. And it is it is the worst thing in the world. I literally cannot stand white feminists. And to kind of give an example of why intersectionality is important. is just the stereotypes that white women face versus women of color. So for example, white women, the reason why feminism was important for them was because they were perceived as like dainty or small or like, uh, like, I don't know what the term is, but like um, damsel in distress, that. Right. But women of color are seen as specifically the black community, black women are seen as like loud and aggressive and and disrespectful and like super out there. So that's where it becomes really damaging feminism in general, well, white feminism specifically, because it shows this contrast between two women and the stereotype that the white woman has kind of is like a shield for them. They're seen as weak or like dainty or small, but the stereotype that's for women of color. um, And as I mentioned, black women specifically is it's dangerous and it's seen it's more harmful. So I think in terms of intersectionality, it's important to consider race when it comes to things like feminism, because it's a really big deciding factor in how someone is treated. Um, And so I think the topic of white feminism is also pretty relevant to this. So um, yeah, so I don't know, do you have any specific um, thoughts on like white feminism and how it overlaps with like intersectionality? Because I think white feminism can kind of be um, turned around and used as like a weapon for the entirety of feminism for women of color.
2: Yeah, so um, to start, like just in case anyone out there doesn't, doesn't know what white feminism is, it doesn't mean that like you're white and a feminist, it just means that like your activism only centers around white women Um, and so white women in like the 1920s when they were fighting for their right to vote um, the movement came out of the fact that black men were getting the right to vote I believe Um, and so they couldn't fathom that like black men were getting the rights to vote and they were not because they were white Um, and so I think it's really important especially now to understand the passes that white women get um, as like because they're women. And so if we think back to um, slavery, right, a lot of people place the blame on white men for being slave owners, but they don't place the blame on white women for being completely complicit and allowing for atrocities to happen in their home. And they and white women are often seen as victims, I think, um, which can just be really damaging and really, um, it's, I think it's it's an important topic to discuss and to unpack because white m- women have had such a large um, part in how we see activism today. And it's not always like a good part, but hopefully like that answers the question a little bit. <music>
1: So I guess a question for both of you is, with social media activism, how do you guys um, sustain intersectionality? Because it's so easy to, well, I wouldn't say easy, but it's really frequent when you see people um, just post a black square thinking that it's activism. So um, yeah, Emma, do you wanna respond to that first?
2: Yeah, so I think, performative activism can be something that's kind of difficult to navigate because I think everything is a little bit performative like even if you share like a good resource it is kind of performative because you I think at least some part of you wants somebody to see that like the thing that you shared that you shared Um, and so I think that it really comes down to intention and how you act in your own life Um, and so for me at least I try to be as genuine as I can on social media which can be really hard because like you know it is Instagram but um but off social media like I am the same person I advocate for the same things um I'm putting in the same work and so I think it really comes down to um your intention and the impact that you have online and offline as well and so for me if my impact online is good but like I'm not doing anything in person or like I keep silent when things are happening around me, then like to me that's very performative and you're only doing it to show people online that like you're trying to be a woke person.
0: Yeah I like what you mentioned about how like a, like there's only like so much like for performative action can take place because at the end of the day like it is sort of like performative in which you like do want someone to sort of see what you're doing But I think like what you mentioned about intentions is the best part because for example, like what Alina mentioned, like during June when the BLM protests started to happen because of George Floyd and everything and then became like the blackout squares, I knew a bunch of girls in my grade, especially the white girls in my grade that would just put like hashtag blackout Tuesday. And when you start to notice that it's a trend is when you realize that's more performative activism than your actual own intentions. And then the mere fact that like you post like certain things that sort of are trending towards the topic. I think that's when you realize like that their intentions aren't the greatest. So I think, I think just recognizing your own sort of privilege in your in the way you want to be addressed is sort of important. But then also like as what um, Emma said is like to place intentions and why like you think this I guess topic is very important to you and your yeah I guess.
1: Um, Yeah. And like, just to mention really quickly, like if you did post a black square, like I appreciate your intentions, but you also need to kind of think outside of social media um, because there's like, there's more that can be done than just posting a black square, like genuinely, like you need to actually, and I think Emma put this like really well, you have to look at what you're doing um like online and also offline um because at the end of the day like what you post on social media won't matter like that one instagram post or that one infographic you posted or reshared, it's not gonna have a direct impact on the communities that are actually being affected by that issue um you need to really be more hands-on about it and maybe i'm just all talking like no no whatever the saying is i don't know but maybe i'm just like talking to a big game or whatever and not doing it myself but i think I think that's something that a lot of people can improve on, and Emma said it really well, that no matter what, there will be some sort of element of performative activism, it's just the way that society works and the way that people work. We have this sort of internal like, internal need for, um, I guess, appreciation from other people, so um, that's, that's something that you can't really escape, but um, yeah so I mean you have a pretty big following on Instagram um, kind of talking about that um, how do you maintain like this intersectional environment in your posts, and how do you make sure that what you're sharing is um, like proper information um, and yeah so what do you what, what's like your process for that?
2: Yeah so um, a lot of my posts is like from Twitter and so like I spend a lot of time know, going through Twitter, fact checking. And so for fact checking, like, it can be really difficult because, you know, like it is social media. Um, But like a quick Google search usually helps um, if it's like a news thing. Um, I think to maintain intersectionality, um, a lot of what I post comes from my own identity. And um, that kind of helps the intersectional outlet, I guess, because like I do check a bunch of boxes. Um, But it's also thinking about, who out there, um, like what boxes I don't check. And so focusing on those and focusing on centering um, things like Black voices for Black History Month um, and like Black queer voices. And so just figuring out what boxes I don't check and what intersections that I don't belong to and I don't identify with. And um, really trying to focus on the intersections that I don't have enough knowledge on And so that helps me learn and it helps other people learn as well.
0: Yeah, no, I really like that you were able to like sort of check the boxes that you don't always, because I know, especially like in Instagram and those social medias, they don't really check that. So it's really good that you're able to do that. And that's why you're called intersectional in the first place. And I think that's, I I thought that was really good
1: um yeah and i think what you said about like making sure you like look at the boxes that you don't check is important that's a really good um like analogy um because a lot of the time we only focus on issues that directly affect us and not ones that affect other people so since you do have such a large platform it's important to use it to uplift voices that are being like overshadowed and spoken over um so yeah i think that's a that's great that you that you are making sure that it's intersectional with what you um post um yeah, so I guess, uh, let me see if I have like, cause I was gonna say something related to that. Oh. This is why I need the template open all the time. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh yes, okay, I remember, sorry. Um, yeah, so with having such a large platform and such a wide audience, um, how do you maintain like the backlash? Have you ever experienced like certain people kind of targeting you for what you're saying or what you didn't say um because we've talked with the previous social media influencer and she's said that she's gotten a lot of backlash for things that she said or that she didn't say um so yeah like do you ever get any um backlash from people
2: yeah for sure um recently like I had to go through another um I guess it would be like a cancel cycle which is kind of interesting because um I think a lot of people's fears is like being canceled but it's happened to me many times and the it's kind of just like a news cycle. A new cycle is like a few days, a cancel cycle is even shorter because there's so many problematic people out there, truly problematic people um, that like, I think it lasted three days and then they just moved on, um, which is really nice. But I would say that um, I have like messed up in the past and um, I think with cancel culture, it's really about, moving forward and, like, what are you doing now to be better than before? So, like, now you've apologized and you said that, you know, you won't do this again. But, like, what are you doing to um, fix the harm that you caused? And what are you doing moving forward to ensure that, like, something like this won't happen again? Um, I think a lot of it, though, with, like, so recently, API community has been attacked, like, constantly every day there's like a new case of um, an elder being pushed. And I think it's a really tricky topic to navigate because um, a lot, well, okay, it is a tricky topic to navigate because the attacks are very unpredictable. Um, It's mostly our elders, but it's also, I've also seen like young people, um, people in their 40s being attacked for absolutely no reason. And it's coming from all sides. It's coming from um, other people of color. It's coming from white people. And so I think it's important to focus on the victims of the attack and how we can stop um, anti-Asian racism as a whole. Um, Even though like, I think our East Asian communities have um, high tensions with like the Black community. And so focusing on the victim and what they need and what they want rather than the perpetrators has been something that i've been trying to focus on because i think it's really easy to caught up in pointing fingers um, especially when it's like other people of color committing these crimes um, but i think it's white supremacy putting us all together all against each other and so it's important to um, focus on who are we really fighting what is the ultimate goal that we want accomplished and how do we get there
0: yeah, no, I like what you were talking about how at the end of the day, like this is all white supremacy sort of painting us against each other because due to the white supremacy, we sort of have like this monolithic, I guess, um, am- amongst age- Asians in which we're seen as like all one type, which in reality we're not. So it's that sort of almost interties to intersectionality. For example, like I'm Filipino American. Um, Alina's is dif- different. So it all like at the end of the day, like this all ties into sort of like white supremacy and how it is. And I like, I really like how you mentioned that. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. So the recent like anti-Asian racism that's been going on is interesting. And it's so, as you mentioned, I'm like really easy to only focus on the perpetrator, but the fact that a lot of the time, whenever an incident like this happens, and if it's a person of color, we immediately go towards the person that um, was doing the attacking. Um, and it definitely goes down to internalized like white supremacy because we see this in so many different forms. Um, if we were to only focus on the person who's, who um, was the perpetrator that's when, we, that's when we get this pinning of BIPOC communities against each other. And especially in the Asian communi- community when we have so much anti-blackness internalized with us because of colonialism, that's when it becomes really dangerous. So, I mean, I don't know, what are your thoughts on this? How do you keep from this internalized white supremacy? Because it's literally in everything for BIPOC communities um, and specifically in the Asian community, what do you suggest for more in, in a more intersectional community when it's so easy for us to fall to this um, internalized like anti-blackness that we have?
2: Yeah, so I think on like you said everybody has like anti-blackness ingrained in them because like um at least in the west you know we it is built on stolen people, stolen labor, stolen land, right? So it growing up in the system, going to school in the system, um all of these different ideas have been ingrained into us and it's up to us to unlearn that. I would also say though a lot of the attacks that I've seen um like the response to the attacks is almost like, well, you know what? Asian people are anti-Black. And so um, almost as like forcing us to justify or to have to prove our humanity um, and to almost, it's almost like making us prove our humanity and say that we shouldn't be attacked. And also to label all Asian people, like the entire continent of Asia as just anti-Black is problematic because Um, Yes, there are instances of anti-Blackness in our communities and things that we all have to work on, but these are also hate crimes. And so um, something that comes to mind is the LA riots of the 1990s. Um, We talk a lot about Latasha Harlins who was murdered unjustly by a Korean store owner. But what we don't talk about is how um, Koreatown was decimated. 4,000 fires, over $400 million of property damage. And I guess like a response to that could be um, lives over property. And that's kind of what we saw over the protests this summer, which I definitely agree lives over property, but you're also burning down marginalized people's businesses, um, people who are already affected by white supremacy. And so um, I think that is also unjust to have burned down like all of Koreatown and forced all of these um, immigrant people to start over somewhere else, especially because um, like places like Chinatown, Koreatown, um, all of these like immigrant communities are placed in lower income areas because white people didn't want us where they lived, right? So they pushed us out and that meant that we all had to fight for land that's not even ours to begin with right so those are just like my thoughts on that
0: and then what i f- like going off on that like what i failed to realize like that now since we have such like for especially like east asians it's like the proximity to whiteness and sort of that model minority myth and that's sort of sad because like as you mentioned before like those riots in which like those marginalized communities were burnt down it's such like, I don't think those people recognize is like we have, like at the end of the day, like in the past, there has been really bad things that have happened in those marginalized communities.
1: Um Yeah, definitely. And I think every, like one thing that I bring up as an example of internalized white supremacy and how it's pinning like BIPOC against each other is, although there's several examples, is this um, company that we have in South Asia. I don't know if it's like in East Asia or Southeast Asia, um, but it's called Fair and Lovely. And it's this bleaching cream. Um, and it's it's really, it's seen everywhere. Like you can go into any sort of like this store, it's all over, I saw it like here, I live next to um, an Indian Pakistani store and they were selling it there. and like a lot of the times if communities like people of color see that they would um blame um south asian countries for that which yes there is a sense of responsibility that we need to take ourselves in order to unlearn anti-blackness and the internalized racism that we have but that company fair and lovely is actually owned by a european brand and so if you yeah if you look at that it's literally owned by white people and that's an example of colonialism that has affected um, BIPOC communities and created internalized racism because the only way that the white people can succeed is through minority communities going against each other and that seems like in a variety of different examples but what I brought up about Fair and Lovely is it just shows how in the South Asian community since I'm from the South Asian community There is a sense of anti-blackness there is but it really is rooted into colonization and the partition and Britain's involvement in India and Pakistan that caused this so um, yeah I think what you're talking about with anti-Asian hate crimes is important because and what you mentioned about like Koreatown being like decimated is important because there is a sense of responsibility that we need to take, but there's also a sense of responsibility that happens that needs to happen in the BIPOC community of recognizing that by us going against each other, there's no solution. There's gonna be no solution. And in the end, it's only going to further the power that the white community has. Um, Yeah, so just thought I'd add in that example.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and to go off of that, I think it's also important to understand the historical, Um, ideas in the east about light skin and so like in east asia at least it was if you were lighter skin that just meant you were like you had people working in the fields for you so that they would tan and like you would not and so um to begin with it was not really a colonization issue it definitely like became um so later but in the beginning at least it was very much like a sign of class and wealth if you were lighter skinned Um, that meant that like, you know, you had people working for you and you had money. And so even when I go back to Asia now, um, people can tell that I'm American because like I wear shorts and like I wear short sleeves in the sun. Um, and you know, like on the plane, they've even said to me, um, like you should buy our skin whitening products. And like, I'm already pretty light as it is. Um, but like even on the planes, they were advertising that you could be like this light of a color, um. If you like use our products or whatever.
0: Yeah, in the Philippines, it's very, very similar in which it's not really it's also seen not in the only in the grocery stores, but also in the movies that they make and sort of like their culture in general because there's sort of like that hierarchy as well. Like if you have that lighter skin, you're able to go into these movies and you're able to like be an actress and like those higher wealth or class opportunities in which for for example, like I have darker skin for me. Like I, if I were in the Philippines, like I doubt I would have had that opportunity. So like, I
1: think like that also goes to show that there's definitely a problem there. <laughs> um Yeah, and like speaking from the South Asian experience, um. So in South Asia, I don't know if this is in the rest of uh, Asia, but there we have like arranged marriages, which is like a very traditional thing, right? So um, one of the things that I've noticed, which is, well, I feel like a lot of people notice this, but um, is that you would get more like, um, how do I say it? Like re- marriage requests if you were fair skin. Like if a guy was looking for a wife, he would say, oh, I'd want her to have fair skin, like light eyes, things like that. And it definitely does go back to like the idea of like, classism as well because that's a very big part in South Asia is class um and like even when I go back there when I visit like there's a very large gap between the low-income people and the high income people like there's they're either very very wealthy or very very poor um and so that's definitely a form of anti-blackness in the in my South Asian community as well um so yeah and uh, as you said like it's definitely been perpetuated by like uh, colonization
0: yeah so I think I think we can wrap it up. If you have anything else that you wanna say, any advice for any of those Asian girls listening out there, um, feel free to say it.
2: Yeah, I think the only advice that I would say is um, don't be afraid of the stereotype, um, especially if you're um, like an East Asian girl because you're expected to conform, Um, you're expected to not rock the boat, you know, get a good job, be successful, At least, like, that's my experience. So, I would say, don't be afraid to rock the boat. Don't be afraid to do what you want because it is your life and it is your identity. Um, So, yeah, don't be afraid. And then, oh, sorry.
1: No, go
0: ahead. I was just going to say, like, where can we find you? Any, like, upcoming events, anything cool that you want to
2: talk to our viewers about? um so my instagram is um at intersectional.abc um abc is for american-born chinese because i had a lot of people have like questions on that um but yeah that's where i like i'm most active and nothing no new projects besides this coming up okay awesome Alina.
0: Alina, do you have anything else to say? I I think I cut you off.
1: (laughs) No, you're good. I was just going to say great advice. Um, But yeah, no, Emma, we had a great time talking with you and make sure to check out her Instagram because she's pretty badass, guys. Um, And love the content that she's always posting. It's very rare to find intersectional activists. So she's a a great one to follow. Um, But we appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about your experiences um, and just in general, the idea of intersectionality. Um, Yeah, so thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, Oh, wait. Did you record it, Helena? I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah, let me stop. Want more of Dear Asian Girl? You can find us everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. We're on everything. Can't get enough? Subscribe, follow, rate, review to get all the updates on the latest at DAG. Let us know your feedback and what we can do to improve. We also can be found on Instagram. Follow us at Dear Asian Girl to receive updates about our latest episodes and fun facts about the host. We'd love for you to reach out. DAG Dear Asian Girl, a podcast dedicated to share the stories of Asian girls everywhere. For the Asian girl, by the Asian girl.